0: Yes. All
1: right. Looks like we're uh, at time so we can get started. I hate to interrupt your conversations. Greetings to you guys online. Thanks for joining. We'll pick up in Luke chapter 17 and give a once over where we left off with the unworthy servants. All right. So before we jump into the text at uh, Luke 17, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is a light in the darkness and a lamp to our paths. We pray that you would bless us that by the light of your word, we may see and know our place in your creation, our place in this specific time and context that we might act wisely, knowing that these days are evil and indeed these days are short. We pray your blessing upon our study. We pray uh, prayers of thanksgiving. The joyful hearts, that you have cleansed us all from our sins, and cleansed us, and made us perfect in your sight through Christ our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just going back to where we left off, we did this rather quickly, and so I don't. We'll just do it quickly again. Uh, at chapter 17, verse 7, the unworthy servants. So this is going to the apostles specifically. And when we see that, we should always have in our minds that there's connotations of the office of the holy ministry and those who hold that specific vocation in view and then how it broadly applies to all of us as Christian. I don't think it's any different here with how we read this parable. Will any one of you, who has a servant. Uh, just online, if you wouldn't mind muting. Thanks very much. And just unmute if you got a question. Oh, maybe you didn't. <laughs> okay, I don't know what's going on. But I'm getting just a little... It almost sounds like an echo. Now it's gone, so thanks. Okay, so at seven, will any one of you who has a slave... Plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, that is get yourself cleaned up, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward, you will eat and drink. So this is just customary in that time and place that if you have a slave come in from the field you don't say, oh, okay, make sure you get yourself something to eat. No, he needs to continue serving, and he can eat after he's served you. That's the life of a slave. And you can notice here that Jesus isn't, doesn't make the comment, and this is why we should overturn all slavery, or this is why slavery is inherently evil. Again, I, I've, I think for years I've been saying this: the Bible doesn't care about slavery nearly as much as we do. It just doesn't It recognizes that there are various kinds of slavery. Some of them wicked, some of them not. Some of them just part of a fallen world. And in some cases, especially when you look at uh, the Old Testament law that governed the nation state of Israel, there were options for slaves to remain permanent slaves, and. Any of that So they would receive a piercing in their ear to indicate that they'd they'd choose to be permanent slaves because that was better than going out and fending for yourself. So imagine uh imagine if you were well, you can even think of Joseph like this. He's Potiphar's assistant. Do you remember that? But his true status is as a slave, and he's in charge of basically everything. If Potiphar was like, okay, slave, I'm gonna let you go. That would have been a major demotion. Out to the streets you go to find whatever job you can find. So slavery takes on all forms and flavors over the the history of uh, our world, our fallen world. And you just don't find the sort of anti-racist, anti-slavery religion that's taken over in America, anywhere else in the Bible, or anywhere else in 2,000 years of church history. Do with that what you will, but I know what I do with it. (laughs) This is the spirit of this age. This is a new religion. This is a new morality that's being set forward in front of us as if the arch sins of our times were these things that aren't, frankly, even sins in the Bible. So keep that in mind. I know it's subversive. I know that might be irritating. Um, but it is uh, the American religion, as adopted by so much of American Christianity, is just, frankly, at odds with the scriptures. And since I'm put under orders to teach you the scriptures, <laughs> I have to do that and take my lumps when they come.
0: Yeah, please. Sure, I heard you one time in a Bible study say that the form of slavery in America was like punishable by death in the Old Testament. Because you're like um, kidnapped from your like there's a form of slavery. I swear I saw heard you said I think mm-hmm. I remember looking it up in the old testament, and I think it was Leviticus or something, and like you cannot like kidnap somebody into slavery or something like Yeah,
1: that. that's that's the key. And I probably did make some kind yeah. of statement okay. like that. So what is what is condemned. In scripture is the idea of man stealing. So if you want to read someone non-controversial on this or listen to someone non-controversial on this, look up Thomas Sowell. He's an African-American guy. And he'll tell you that the vast majority of the slavers who bought who, who um, captured slaves in Africa and sold them over here in the States were themselves Africans. And so, the idea that you would go in and kidnap a man and sell him into slavery, that is condemned in the scriptures. That is an immoral act. So, you can think of the same thing whether you, if you were to steal a child and and sell that child into slavery, that's an immoral act. If you were to steal a man or a woman and do the same, that's an immoral act, right? Right. Now, where, biblically speaking, there's a lot more gray area is in a conquered people. And one thing that we have to say is that it's not inherently evil in a fallen world to take a conquered people and make them slaves. Why do we have to say that? Because God himself instructs Israel to do this in a number of places in the Scripture. So if God himself is instructing this, and we're going to make the claim that this is inherently evil, we're saying God did something inherently evil. I don't want to say that. (laughs) I hope you don't want to say that. That's sitting in judgment over God. But I think you can see, I mean, even if your stomach is feeling kind of uncomfortable the way my stomach sometimes feels uncomfortable when we talk about these things, how deeply we've been socialized with the American religion and the American way of viewing the world, and how we've just assumed that that's the biblical way of of looking at the world only to look at the Bible and be shocked by what we see so worth keeping in mind uh, as the root of progressivism, probably right now has to do. Uh, much with subverting Christian Christianity and doing so with an alternate morality, that a key tenet of that alter, alternate morality is the only people who can be racist are whites, and slavery is their sin. And thus reparations are due and you can, and anyone who's not white should be allowed to steal and burn cities and do whatever else. And this is the new morality that's being set forward openly. It's just worth looking and saying that's inimical to Christianity on multiple points. And the claims of it are the claims of a sec of a separate religion. Okay. So that's probably controversial enough. Uh, and, and, of course, if you have any feedback, if you disagree, I'm happy to entertain that uh, during class or after class. That's fine. Well, Pastor, could you, uh, could you extend that to genocide then? Yes. Again, as uncomfortable as this sounds to us as Amer- Americans who have been indoctrinated with this, with this kind of American morality, we cannot say that genocide is inherently sinful. For the same reason, God commands genocide. God can't command something that is inherently evil. We are a lot squishier. We are a lot softer. We are a lot more squeamish about a whole bunch of things that God isn't. And I know that's uncomfortable, but it's a reality. So, I mean, does that, does that mean we should advocate for genocide? No. Does that mean that we should look at that as an ideal political solution? No. All right. But we can have all kinds of conversations about the relative morality of genocide or slavery or whatever the hot topic might be. We can have all kinds of conversations about that. But one thing we can't do is categorically reject it as something inherently evil. Because as soon as we do that, we've accused God of sin. And we've we've acknowledged out loud that we have a different religion than Christianity.
0: Couldn't we make an easy enough clarification? Go and say, that aside, which God commands, is just, and that which there's no evidence that God commands is not.
1: I think that's a very safe argument to make. It may not be the end of the conversation, but that's a very safe argument to make. And I've got, and I've got no problem. And if someone wants to set up stakes there, and I mean, I don't care. I, I, my point is, uh, my pastoral concern and what I care about is watching an erosion of Christian morality and watching it transform in the name of Christ into something totally different. That's what I'm concerned about indictments made against God with a sleight of hand so that American Christians don't see what's happening. I want to point that out. And I, that's where I want to draw the line. If, if people want to make arguments that like, well, when God commands it, it's okay. And otherwise it's not okay. Fine with me. Make whatever arguments you want to make. Let's have the conversation. So long as out of the gate, we're not condemning almighty God and asserting tenets of a new religion. So again, um, one of the, one of the things that you'll see as you become familiar with the text, or as you just reflect on the text in light of these conversations, you'll see racisms throughout the Bible. You'll see sexisms throughout the Bible. Uh, you'll see God, um, commanding slavery. I mean, there's an entire New Testament book about how a, how a slave is to be returned to his master. Uh, you're going to find all kinds of anti-American, anti-progressive, uh, teachings and realities in the Bible. And it's important to acknowledge those. And it's important to be ready to stand your ground on what the Bible teaches um, without buying into a false religion where you end up indicting God or indicting the scriptures. So, it, I mean, just some examples. Paul says, all Cretans are liars. That would be a racism today. If we believe that that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we've got something wound too tight. Um, Jesus calls a Gentile woman a dog, which may just sound derogatory to us, but that's actually a slur. The Jews regularly referred to the Gentiles as dogs. It's a racial slur. So there's racial slurs out of the mouth of our Lord. Is a racial slur necessarily an evil thing? Absolutely not. And if you think it is, you're not paying attention. And I think maybe a lower hanging fruit would be when you get, well, any, any idea of profanity and meanness or insult is immediately sinful. I hate to break it to you, but the prophets, as recorded by the Holy Spirit, have all of these. The unfaithfulness of Israel is likened in extremely explicit, rated X language to Israel committing bestiality. So that's Holy Spirit inspired, preached and penned by Ezekiel, for example. Paul says to his enemies within the church, I hope you castrate yourselves. (laughs) There's regular times in which um, our Lord and St. Paul call people morons and fools. So why are we so prissy? Something has happened. And that something that has happened is that Christianity has blurred in with this thing called Americana or American religion or Americanism. You can just call it American Christianity if you want. So we run across these places in the scriptures where right here, again, I challenge you, Jesus is talking about a slave. I know the ESV tames it and says a servant, as if this is Alfred and Batman somewhere in the background. That's not what's going on here. This is a slave who's at work in the fields all day. And he comes in and the master doesn't say, today I set you free because slavery is bad. He says, change your clothes and make me dinner and afterwards you'll eat. And that standard, that's par for the course, and Jesus expects everyone to simply agree with him that that's the standard course of action. In fact, if that's not the standard course of action, if that's not the way it is and should be, then his next point falls flat. So his next point is just to kind of get a run up back at verse eight and then into his point in verse nine, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? What's the answer? No. no. <laughs> you don't thank your slave because he do- you told the slave to do something and he did it. That's just the nature of the master-slave relationship. Which, by the way, we tame all the time. Uh, when you look at the House Toffel text, when you look at the uh, small catechism table of duties, we've tamed it in English to employer-employee. It's master-slave. That's what it is. That's what it is in the original text. I, I think in our culture, it equates to employer-employee. So I'm not against it. But we can't let our unique cultural circumstances then color the way we read the text and say, well, it can't possibly be about master and slaves because slavery is forbidden in the Bible. The very language of the Bible precludes that conclusion. All right. So does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then the answer is all, obviously no. So you also. When you have done all you were commanded. Now, who's the you? The apostles. We know that from, uh, what is it, verse 5. It's the apostles. So when you, plural, also, when you apostles, also, when you have done all that you were commanded, who's doing the commanding? God. Christ. Yep, God. He's the master. And we are his slaves. And by the way, this is a, I I mean, this is a wonderful, this is a whole wonderful paradigm that we're not able to talk about hardly because we just think slavery is bad. We, by definition, as Christians, are slaves. We are not our own. We are men under orders. We are slaves who are told, go here, and we should go there. That's the entire point. Now, all the more is that heightened for the apostles, for those who hold the office of the holy ministry. But you can see how this extends to all Christians, period. We're slaves and Christ is the master. So when you have done all that you were commanded, namely by me, what shall you say? We are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Now, this puts the law in a wonderful context, because if you were to accomplish the law in full, so we all harbor in our minds this idea that if I had one day where I lived perfectly according to the law, God would give me a gold star. I would have, I would have done something raise And the point that Jesus is making, the theological point here is, No, you would have done your duty. You would have done the bare minimum. You would have been a human being in the true sense. So would you you think you should receive thanks for simply being a human being? That's what you are. No, you think you should receive thanks for being a slave and doing what you were told to do? No. So that's fascinating because then we can see that his mercy upon us is so great that we daily fail to meet the bare minimum of what a good slave is, and still he forgives us, and still he loves us, and still he keeps us as his own. So I think a wonderful teaching of the law and the nature of the law here, with the deep implication of our Lord's mercy toward his servants. Now, I, this should be read, uh, I think, because it's so similar to a previous parable that we saw back at 12. And you'll, I think you'll see then how remarkable this is. So back to Luke chapter 12 and 37, this will set it. And again, we've covered this ground before, but especially given the things I've emphasized tonight.
0: <clears throat>
1: I think that this will uh, be all the more astonishing. So just at, um, at 35 to get the full context, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants, and again it's slaves whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So this is the the astonishing thing about Christ, that yes, he is our master and we are his slaves but it is not beneath him to become a slave unto the slaves and to do that very thing, which he in chapter 17 says is unthinkable and everybody assumes it's unthinkable. He will do that very thing. He will dress himself though. He is the master as a slave and serve the slaves. I think here too, you can see the glimpse, the profound, Nature of Christ's humility and the humility of what, uh, what the humility of God and the humility of what it means to be a true man, a perfect man, so that the greatest of all is the servant of all, and that's embodied in Christ. The greatest of all is the slave of all. That's the other thing that's so noxious when we say, Oh, slavery is bad. To be a slave is, in fact, the ultimate Christian goal. (laughs) To be a slave is awful. No one would ever want to be a slave. All slaves should be liberated because all men should serve themselves. That's Satan. Christ says he who would be greatest of all would become servant of all, or even stronger, must become servant of all, except get rid of that word servant, slave of all. Yeah, please. Well, we were slaves by choice. Are you?
0: Well, I. I, Were
1: you not captured by Christ? I I, I,
0: I, I choose to be here tonight. I choose to worship Jesus. Or I could do something different. Now, I'm a slave. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. But I might get, at least the old kind of (laughs) slaves, might get beaten and whatever.
1: Yeah. so So as soon as you
0: probably we're going to get beat you
1: well (laughs) that's how it goes yeah
0: we have (laughs) a choice yeah historically slaves didn't have (laughs) a
1: choice so i'll play the game i don't think we do have a choice i think we've been captured by christ but i'll play the game i'll grant the assertion so we do have a choice here's the point though you can choose to not be a slave of christ but you're not free, you immediately become a slave of someone else. Any guesses? (laughs) Satan, you are a slave of one or the other, and your only choice is who will you serve if you want to grant choice. So the idea of, well, I'm a free man, and I choose to put myself under Christ is the logic of the Jews when they said, we've never been slaves to anyone. And Christ isn't having that, of course. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So you're a slave to sin and Satan, or you're a slave to Christ. That's it. And if you want the long, drawn out, but profound treatment on this, Luther's bondage of the will. So this upside downs a lot of our thinking. And the most noxious thing about the new morality, which is just being a slave is the worst possible thing you could ever be no one should ever be a slave. Isn't that interesting? Because Christ says that that's the best you could thing you could ever be, and the thing to which we all ought to aspire. So Satan's at work, the Antichrist is doing his shenanigans, and it's worthwhile for us to buck the spirit of the age so that we can see the riches of what Christ has in store for us. You know, and there, and John does such a great job in his gospel when you went through this um, before you saw this, that the humiliation and the glory are one and the same. Now, a Pauline way, of a more Pauline way of thinking, both ways of thinking are great. They're not, it's like two sides of the same coin. But a Pauline way of thinking is much more like we are being humiliated, humbled with Christ that we might be exalted with him. We are slaves with him that we might reign with him, that kind of idea. But for John, the two are one and the same. The glory, and I think, I always think of this, like there's good examples of this in terms of the home. The glory of a father is when the toilet's overflowing and he dives in to fix it. That is simultaneously, Shame, humiliation, lowliness, slavery. You're digging around in feces for crying out loud. No one would choose that, okay? But you're doing that for them, them being your family behind you, that they don't have to. And they are so glad, even if they don't say it, that you're there doing that for them. The shame and the glory are one. That's the way John looks at the cross. That's the way John looks at what it is to be conformed into the image of the slave of all and for us to become slaves. And this is the unique thing. It's like, if you start to view the world this way, you start to view your faithfulness as you suffer, your faithfulness under the cross, your faithfulness when the world despises you, this is both, yes, it's humbling, and it's humiliating, and it's slavery, and it's lowliness, but it is also simultaneously your glory, because it's the same glory born by our Lord Jesus Christ. See, so it's meant to transform the way you perceive yourself, the way you perceive this life, and your place in it, uh, so long as we're here. Okay, so maybe enough on that. But if you have any questions or comments, or you want to add something, you see something different, let me know. Thoughts to ponder. All right. So I was gonna, I was gonna skip this next part, but I don't think we should, in light of maybe where we are on the biblical timeline here. Uh, so. Let's go, let's go real quick. The next parable proper is at 18.1, and I had in mind to skip it, but I don't think I want to just because of the content. Now, the 10 lepers, this will be well known to you. It um, arises several places in the lectionary. <laughs> On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. This is my favorite line. As they went, they were cleansed. And I think that that's just such an intriguing line because they weren't cleansed and then they go. But as they go, they're cleansed. The I, I love the idea that there's a progressive cleansing that comes here. If you look at the healings of Jesus as presented in the New Testament, maybe we'll get an opportunity to do that at some point. You'll find that there's all different kinds. In my my mind, has a tendency to just make it all like, oh, he healed that person. Remember the guy he heals who like he makes him uh, like he's restoring his sight and the guy sees trees everywhere. <laughs> what's up with that and then he you know then he sees everything clearly on the second try to another man he says do you want to be healed which i think is like one of the most penetrating questions imaginable especially in terms of the care of souls like do you want i mean we all have prayers lord take this away from me lord make this better imagine if jesus said do you want to be healed that's a profound question isn't it that cuts right to the soul. And so there's all kinds of uh, interesting aspects to the healings that Jesus does. You can think of the woman with the flow of blood and how he, who touched my garment? I mean, he knows, so what's he up to? All kinds of three-dimensionality. And this is one, that they're not instantly healed at his word, as is so often the case, but as they go, they're cleansed. Then one of them when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, which, of course, this defies expectations. This is a real event that happened. It defies expectations that a Samaritan amongst nine Jews would be the only one to return and give thanks. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, there's obviously an an indictment here of the Jews who reject Jesus and the Jews who just see the miracle taking place and, hey, that's all I wanted, and run. Uh, There is a law element to this. But I think there's also just an overarching gospel element that the reason why Jesus wants the nine others to return and give praise to God is because he's come to reconcile them to God. He's come not merely to heal the leprosy of their bodies, but the leprosy of their souls. And that is evident when you go on to 19, because he says to this foreigner, to this Samaritan, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And that made you well is always a play on uh, salvation, has saved you as a fine interpretation so what did he what he's got to say to the samaritan is what he wanted to say to the nine others your faith has saved you i've come to heal more than your body and <laughs> i think the i think the heartbreak of this is not that jesus didn't get a thank you note <laughs> <laughs> this text falls on thanksgiving and so sometimes you find that in the sermon <laughs> They weren't thankful. Oh, yeah. Well, kind of. But I don't think Jesus is particularly miffed about that. I mean, for crying out loud, he gives daily bread to everyone. Imagine the thanklessness there. But what he's more, I think, disheartened is that that's all they wanted from him. They just wanted a quick fix to their immediate problems. They didn't want salvation. Okay, well, that's enough. We're going real fast through this stuff. There's other stuff we could point out, but that's not the point. So 20 being asked by the Pharisees when, now this is the first kind of question. You get, you get a when question and a where question in this section, but this is why I didn't want to skip it ultimately. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God, and again, when the reign of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom or reign of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this will tie in beautifully with that verse that otherwise may have puzzled you from the gospel reading from John. Remember where Jesus talks about the wind blowing wherever it goes and you see it's what it, it's interactions, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And then he says, so is it with all who are born of the spirit. So that it, he's saying the same thing there. in effect, as he's saying here, that the workings of the kingdom of God are internal in the hearts of men, as he gives them new birth through water and the spirit. And as the kingdom or reign of God comes within, in such a way that you can't say, look, here it is, or there it is. You can't say, when the kingdom of God comes, you can't say, um, oh, it's this particular church, or it's at this specific center somewhere in Jerusalem. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. It comes inside the hearts and minds, as the word penetrates and creates faith and makes us into new creatures.
0: The, the same thing with the women at the well. And uh, that he's saying, hey, you, you w- don't worship. In yes. you know,
1: Jerusalem said, no, it's going to be, it's me. Yes. Spirit and truth. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. The and, worship will neither be on Gerizim, which is their mount, the Samaritan mount, or Jerusalem, which is the Jewish mount. It will be in spirit and in truth. Yeah, yeah exactly right. He's essentially saying the same thing there as he's saying here. Yeah, so the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward signs where they'd be like, okay, well, uh, God's just set up his um, Congress. Uh, That's not how it happens. Okay, so the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And, of course, if they've been paying any attention to Jesus in good faith, he said the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. That's the entire thing. He is the king, and wherever he is, there is the rain, and they're just rejecting that. So he's saying, hey, don't look, for, don't look for me to set up a castle or a throne on earth. All right, 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. That is to say, you're going to long, you're going to long for the Lord Jesus. And you're going to long, I think he's speaking specifically to obviously these 12 and 11 ultimately, and saying, look, there's going to be times where you wish we were face to face. And then what's going to come is a temptation. They will say to you, look there or look here. That is to say, you'll see some like, physical manifestation of jesus presence do not go out or follow them again i think that this would fit right under my kingdom is not of this world for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other so will the son of man be in his day Okay, so when Jesus comes in final reign, you're not going to see it on CNN and buy a plane ticket to Jerusalem. It's like the lightning flashing across the sky, like everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. It's the blink of an eye. That's Jesus' point. And by the way, St. Paul says all the same thing.
0: This is kind of drawing my right back. They should know this from Elijah. Remember when he goes into the cave. After he's, he runs from uh, Jezebel and, oh, yeah. and the, the lightning and the earthquake and all that, and it's a still small voice. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah the still small voice. Really, ultimately, I mean, yeah, typologically pointing us to the uh, incarnation, the still small voice, the Word incarnate. No, this is this coming is um, they're not still or small. This coming is the final yeah. one and the obvious one. And everyone's going to know it. So uh, this idea that, you know, Christ is going to slip in secretly and someone's going to say, hey, here's where to go find Jesus, that's precluded. Everyone's going to know it's going to be like a lightning flash across the sky. Okay, Um, 25, but first he, uh, then that is the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So... Again, he's pointing to his crucifixion here, obviously his passion, just as it was in the days of Noah. And this is the part I didn't want to skip over because I think this is really apropos for us and our time to keep in mind. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And he goes on to describe this. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the definitive day, I mean, if you go back and look, Noah's preaching about the flood for decades, might even be a couple hundred years. I'm rusty and dusty on that fact. He's preaching about the coming flood for a long time. Nobody cares. And when the day comes, it comes swiftly, decisively, and finally. And that's what Christ is telling us about his return, like the lightning from the east to the west. And how did it go for the wicked in the flood? Not good. And swift destruction. But for Noah and the seven others, salvation in the same act. And so Christ is saying, so will his return be. So he'll show up immediately and it'll be the end of the wicked. But those who look to him, who are credited with his righteousness on account of faith, it's salvation for us. So it's encouragement too, I think. What is Jesus saying? Because we get all wound up like, what are the signs? What are the things that we have to check off to see if the Lord can come? And where are we at in the timeline of revelation? Neither Paul nor Jesus view the scriptures or view reality like that. Both of them teach any second. That's how we should live. That's how we should believe. And that's when it's going to come. Because look at what Jesus has said here. Like, look, it's not going to come with signs to be observed. It doesn't mean that you're not going to sense and and view things elsewhere. He talks about like how you're going to know that the world is drawing to a close. And I think that's obvious to all of us. But it's not going to be in such a way that you can be like, okay, on Tuesday of, you know, January, uh, 21st or whatever it is 2024 that's not how it's going to work okay so what rather it's going to be like is everybody's just eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and just carrying on as if it were normal business and then just as the floods hit the wicked world the fire will hit the wicked world and that'll be the end okay look at 28 likewise just as it was in the days of lot they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So obviously the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is cited here as well as the destruction of the world and the flood. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? All right, so swift, decisive, and the judgment absolutely clear. And again, there's not like, there's warnings and there's signs, but the kind of warnings and signs that are easily ignored. And most of the world is ignoring that. Okay, so then 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So he's doing a, he's doing a homiletical play here on, um, you know, you're, if you go down into your, I think what he's saying is if you go down into your house where your goods are, it's like the flood. And I think, I think the second line, you know, I'm not completely sold on that. I sort of think that's what it is. I think it's sort of a reference to the flood. And then the last one is very clearly, Lot, though. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That's obvious. All right, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, that's sort of the punk. That's the main thesis. That's the main teaching. If you're seeking to preserve your life, if you're eating and drinking and marrying, if you think that's your sumum bonum, if that's all there is to the world, if you think that um, just seeking your pleasure in whatever sexual dalliances or excesses there are, as everyone in the world does, and you think that that's it, you're going to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose all of that, as Noah did, as Lot did, even as our Lord Jesus himself did, then you will keep it. So this is another one of those, like, don't be like the world. Whatever the spirit of the age is, figure it out and put yourself in opposition to it. Okay, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And then, um, so we'll stop there because then there's a question posed. So this is where, I mean, some folks get the rapture. The problem with the rapture isn't this idea that God sucks out the believers and brings them up into the air with him. That's not the problem. Paul teaches that in Thessalonians. The problem is what they do with that, that then after that, there's all these events that happen and there's this whole unfolding narrative that happens. That's the error of the rapture. Um, the rapture or being taken up happens exactly when Christ returns and the wicked are doomed. Finally. So that's the that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. I mean, one is there's going to be two in a bed and one is going to be doomed and not the other. There's two grinding grain together to make bread and one is going to be doomed and the other is going to be saved. One will be taken, the other left. I tend to think the ones taken are the ones saved because the ones left, remember what's going to happen to the world? The world gets deluged in fire and all the wicked with it. And that basically goes the way of the lake of fire. So that's what our Lord's teaching here. So, I mean, again, what's his point to us as his disciples? Stay ready. And it's going to, when it happens, it's going to happen swift. It's not going to happen in such a way where you go, oh, well, there's clearly Christ establishing his nation state. And, oh, look, they're erecting a temple. So uh, I guess we better pay attention and buy some plane tickets and that's not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen fast, swift, decisive, and the rest of the world's going to be oblivious. Now, again, as I kind of hinted at earlier, where Jesus is very explicit, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, um, in the fifth discourse, he uh, talks about the signs that it, believers will see, knowing that the world's drawing to a close. That's all the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all the rest. And I think that this is um, 37. When they said to him. Now that they is a little bit ambiguous. The last reference was to the disciples. The Pharisees, of course, ask when. Whoever the they is here, whether it's the disciples or the Pharisees or both, all of the above. I don't think it matters. It's not explicit. When they said to him, where, Lord? So when and where, when said, he effectively answers that question with no one knows or will ever know, but in the blink of an eye and when it's going to be too late to change teams. (laughs) So that's the answer to when. Now, what about where? And this is really enigmatic, but I think it's really frankly simple. He said to them where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. So how do you know where a corpse is? You look up in the sky and there's a bunch of vultures and you have a pretty good idea of where the corpse is. That's the idea. So in other words, the signs will be so obvious to you. You'll know when it's upon you. There's a whole bunch of like metaphor and typology and speculation about, well, what are, what is the corpse? What are the birds? The Romans had had birds on their, uh, on their, on their tapestries. Maybe it's that. And maybe the corpse is Jesus on the cross. And I, whatever. I don't I mean, I let's just make this point clear. I think all of that sort of homiletic, that's pious reflection on the text. What is Jesus' point? In the same way you find a corpse by looking for the vultures, you're going to know where it happens by keeping an eye on the signs all around. And the where it happens is, I, again, I think he's being enigmatic because, you know, Jesus is um, he's very kind because he puts up with people's stupidity. And I'm so thankful he puts up with my stupidity. The way he interacts with disciples and Pharisees, it's just that every once in a while you can detect a little bit of annoyance or even a little bit of um, talk, intentionally talking past them. And I think that this is one of those. I think he practically gives them a non-answer. I think instead of, I think he refrains from saying, didn't I just tell you as the lightning flashes from one side of the horizon to the other, it's going to be obvious. Did did you miss that? Let me repeat that. Uh, I think he just says, look, it's going to be obvious. Pay attention. It's going to be obvious to you. That's all I think he's saying with uh, verse 37. So in terms of strict exegesis, that's where I'd set People want to do artistic stuff with it. Uh, that's all good.
0: Well, that when like when the apostles, when they he asked, "Why well, can't I see the Father?" and he's just told him, I am the Father, and I almost feel like you did That whole conversation went into one ear and out the other. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're a knucklehead.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of an amazing testament to Christ's graciousness where he where he just answers so i mean he gets a little spicy with uh in our gospel text with um, nicodemus i mean are you a teacher of israel and you don't know these things i mean that's a pretty direct jab but even then i mean they're being i just i can't see it any other way they're being pretty nasty with each other the facade gets pulled off the polite the polite facade is oh we know that you're a teacher come from god because you're doing stuff only god can do and Jesus isn't like, well, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, oh, I really appreciate that. You know, Jesus just flat out. I don't think we appreciate just the almost autistic nature. of this. He just flat out. Is, Unless you are born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. We just said, oh, God does all these things. And Jesus is like, you're blind and stupid. And unless you're utterly born again, unless you become something entirely different than you presently are, you're not even going to see what I'm talking about. I mean, it is it is abrasive. It is in your face. These are two rabbis, though, going after. I mean, you know, it's. sometimes pastors can get that way with each other, too. It's just you should know better. What is what's his response? I mean, this nonsense about crawling up in his mother's womb again. Do you think he's being serious? I don't think he's being serious. I think, he, oh, what can a man be born again by crawling up into his mother's womb, being born a second time? I think he's being nasty. So Jesus hammers him again. No, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he just takes him to school. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. You have no clue what's happening because you're blind to all of this. That's the whole, the wind. You just see the effects, but you have no clue of the internal reality. He says you're teacher of israel and you don't even know these things so i mean even then he's even though he's being insulted and he's certainly delivering it back he i think he's showing extreme patience even with a guy like nicodemus and it tends to pay i seems to have paid off because nicodemus ends up converted by the end so i think i think this is an example of our lord being uh yeah high-handed in a most appropriate way with his disciples and or the Pharisees, whoever asked this question. Yeah.
0: Just a comment on going back to this uh, you know, slave uh, thought. Uh, you know, Jesus, what Jesus in my mind, is said all authority over the earth. And authority implies, you know, uh, oversee uh, levels of responsibility is and I think that's in my mind that's God's order and but we're by nature a mutinous people and that's what's happening in this country there's a it's like we're on a ship and you know we're going against authority and we're going against the levels that God has put in place and that's the the, the perspective that I look at it. you know disorder is, is sin. You know, if you think of it, it in that context, it's going against God's law and against the Lord. I do want to put that in as a way of you, we're you, people like that's our flesh. Mm-hmm. We want to uh, rule ourselves, pride. You
1: know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had, I was listening to some other LCMs pastor make this connection. I can't remember who, or I give credit by name um but so in the initial temptation uh satan says um if you when you eat of it you will become like god which is interesting especially given our context now i think this is obviously universally true but just differently applied according to the cultural context but that especially hits home in our context of radical egalitarianism. And I spoke some some on this this last Sunday in Proverbs because the temptation of uh, is, hey, you will become like God. You will be that, I mean, what hierarchy did they know? The chief hierarchy they knew was God who said, don't eat from this tree. And their acknowledgement that he was God, the creator, and they were his creatures, not God's, was that they didn't obey. But Satan gets them to sin precisely by holding out you and God are equal, the hierarchy will be no more. That, you know, I don't I don't want to get too over the top here. I think, I think it's very safe to say that in our culture, we're in the end times. <laughs> I think that's easy. Now, are we in the global end times, the universal end times? I'm I'm a lot less certain of that. All right. Be, the world's been through so much turmoil and so many tumultuous times. You'd, I mean, in the middle of the Black Plague, you'd be like, this is it. In the middle of the World Wars, you'd be like, this is it. And various other times in history, you'd be like, this is it. So, I, you know, don't color me one of the kind of radicals of like, hey, this is it. But for our culture, it certainly is it. And you can see many apocalypses for differing nations all the time. And they tend to follow the biblical pattern. It's really strange. They tend to follow a microcosmic biblical pattern of what the big one will be. So like small earthquakes compared to the big one. But what's happening in our culture definitively is radical egalitarianism that wants to destroy uh, all different layers of authority. So you see this in feminism um, you see this in uh, you see this in feminism. You see this um, being instrumental in the state where children are being allowed or empowered to subvert the will of their parents to go get body parts chopped off. So you've got subversion of the husband and wife hierarchy, subversion of the parent children hierarchy. The whole idea of just humanism is that. Man is the measure of all things, not God. And so God is dead and all this other nonsense, but it's a, it's a radical egalitarianizing of the cosmos. So the sinful project, at least in the West, has been level it all, make it all equal. And that project is, is a disaster. And you can think of the different applications of that project too. You can think of communism where Christians were persecuted I mean, I don't be suspicious of this too. The main, the main tragedy we all have in our minds is the Holocaust. Fascinating because sheer numbers, there are way more Christians who were murdered by communist Russia and the USSR than Jews by Hitler. Hmm. Why the distortion? Why, if we're so objective and scientific, wouldn't we line up the tragedies one after another numerically and denounce them all in their proper ordering? Because we're not objective. And the historical narrative is an objective. And there's an agenda here, at bare minimum and most obvious, there's an agenda here to diminish and completely erase Christian suffering. What's going to be put in place of that? The suffering of the Jews. Interesting. Interesting, if you know anything about the Jewish rejection of Christ that's taken place, and what many of the church fathers have asserted in regard to the Antichrist and the end times religion, that it's of Jewish origin. So uh, keep those things in mind. Thoughts to ponder. Um, and I don't think they're without merit, um, even if they happen to just be the apocalypse of the West or the apocalypse of the States, fine. Uh, but if it does tie into a greater uh, time of apostasy and the beginning of the final apocalypse before the return of Christ, color me as one not terribly surprised. Yeah. Now I think that we can be reinvigorated By that, simply because Christ sets before his disciples of all times and places, the reality that we should always be prepared for his return, that we should always live as if the next raindrops are the raindrops of the flood. The next really hot day (laughs) is the beginning of the flood of fire, so that we should live in a way that's constantly waiting for Christ's return and constantly expectant of it. All right, well, I've carried this over. I'm sorry, I got a little wound up there. Pastor,
0: Pastor can I ask a quick question?
1: You sure can. Um, if anyone needs to take off because you got pressing matters, please do. I take no offense. So, yeah, go go for it. At the beginning, you mentioned Thomas Sowell. Mm-hmm. How is his
0: name spelled? Is he an author that I can find easily?
1: yeah he's an author uh, s o w e l l okay very good thank you I, yeah he's claim to fame as an economist Vickers says and i think that that's right i think he's got a book on on the economy um i don't know that he's a christian man i don't know that his worldview is particularly christian i i certainly in the things i've i've heard i don't necessarily agree with everything he says, uh, but he's got um, great insights. And again, he's a fantastic source because of the objective nature. He's an African-American guy. And when he kind of shoots things objectively, it's very eye-opening. Um, yeah. Very, so, yeah. Just piqued my interest, that's all. Yeah, he's yeah, got stuff all over YouTube if, uh, for free. So, yeah. all right, gentlemen, let's uh, close up with the Lord's Prayer then. Let's get on your way. Our Father who art in heaven, Hey, thank you guys online for joining. Thank you all for coming here. Next week we're off, uh, but we'll be back on two weeks from
0: tonight.